Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We could have a shirt, a green shirt that was actually alive. It would take some watering and maybe a little fertilizer, but we could really have clothing that's alive. We're finally doing an episode that's not about politics. So and we're exciting. super excited. Yeah, we're very excited. We're back to hard science for a week at least. I am Jason Kevlar and I'm joined here by Ankita Rao. Hi, Ankita. Hey. Last week or two weeks ago? It'll be three weeks ago. It'll be three ago. weeks ago. Oh my God, we're moving on a very quick timeline here. We went to Biofabricate, which is a synthetic biology conference in Manhattan. And if you're not familiar, synthetic biology is the use of biology to basically design and engineer life. So we're talking about CRISPR, we're talking about GM products, we're talking about uh, engineering yeast to make THC and rhino horns and all sorts of crazy stuff. We're talking about cloning, designer babies, things of that nature. What was the coolest thing you saw at Biofabricate? Mine would be the ear. Do you remember the ear? I do remember the ear, yeah. That was Andrew Pelling of Spiderwort out of Canada, I believe. Mm -hmm. He basically used slices of apple, cut an apple in the shape of an ear, and then a human ear. A human ear. Replaced the cells of the apple with human cells and put it in this carbon sort of oven almost to grow an ear. Yeah, so very interestingly, the decontextualized cells took to growing in the shape of, of the ear, and it's obviously not a functional ear. Uh, not yet, at least, but it grows and it looks very weird. There was all sorts of crazy things there. I did a story about how we hear all these wild synthetic biology promises. So we hear about how we can cure cancer, but then we also hear things about how humans will one day be able to give birth to dolphins and <laughs> how we'll be able to use CRISPR to make dragons in the future. <laughs> There's been this big backlash from the scientists actually doing this research saying we shouldn't do this sort of prognosticating. And I think that's not the right tack to take because this is fundamentally a very speculative field of science. If you are going to engineer life, something that inherently doesn't exist, you are speculating that, A, this is something that's going to be good for the world. B, you're going to be able to find funding for it and C, that it will eventually be possible or will be used in a way that will be possible. Like even if you're making the very basic tools, well, possible to like do on at scale, I suppose. So even if you're making the tools, like even if you're doing CRISPR, that's very basic science, but you're betting on the fact that the tool will be used for something at some point and you need to consider what those things might be. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to a few of these bio designers. They're basically people who take the science and then prognosticate and do these very advanced art projects. The, the Apple is sort of one of them. 
you know, how we're going to repopulate the earth after it goes extinct <laughs> or like after a major extinction event, how can we grow human animal hybrid organs mm -hmm. in animals? And some scientists say that this is very dangerous for people to do that. And then by the time it gets to journalists, they say it's so clickbaity that it's just dangerous to everyone. And I, I just don't buy that. It's a fine line because some of the stuff we saw It's already in the world. It's not speculative anymore. CRISPR, for example, is no longer like, oh, it's going to be this thing that we use now. They're saying, okay, how exactly will we use it? So some of us weren't sure that the conference would already have concrete stuff for us to look at, but it did. And it was kind of the future in present tense. Yeah, I mean, we're talking very seriously about engineering mosquitoes to eradicate themselves. We did a story recently about in Florida where they want to basically make mosquitoes that won't transmit Zika. And one of my favorite things at the conference was Heather Dewey Hagborg, who, if you've been following this space at all, is a prominent figure in it. She did a project where she picked up gum and cigarette butts off the street and then used DNA sequencing to make portraits of what the people may have looked like who left them there. And it was just this very weird black mirror-y type dystopian art project. But then, you know, a couple months after her project came out, there's now two companies that are doing this for police based on crime scene DNA. So we need to think very seriously about how this stuff will be used in, in public. What was your story about? That's what this podcast is about. I'm sorry to <laughs> yeah, take I mean, over. First, I also want, I mean, we'll put this in the show notes, but there's several different stories that we did out of this conference. Um, Kaylee did a really interesting story about DNA replication, and Sam Cole did a cool story about the ear that we talked about. And there's a video of spider silk Adidas that were just introduced. So, We'll make sure that those are all in one place for you guys to check out after the podcast. Yeah, we did four separate videos, which are all very cool. Yep. Today, we're actually going to talk about something that I'm a little bit obsessed with, which is kind of how messed up and unsustainable our fashion industry is and how synthetic biology could be one of the solutions to fixing that. Do you know about this? <laughs> do I know how do that you know about our fashion clothes industry? are bad for the environment? <laughs> yes. I can surmise that they're probably not great, but I don't know how bad. Yeah. I don't know whether the environmental destruction happens at the cotton harvesting phase or the sewing phase or the sweatshop phase or the shipping phase. I have no idea. I mean, it's all, it's all of that, yeah. <laughs> but it's also, so there's two parts of it that I think about. One is your clothes that are made of normal kind of normal natural fibers like cotton and those have become really difficult because for example a single cotton t-shirt takes about 5,000 gallons of water to create and that's before it even goes through the rest of the production process and on the other hand there's synthetic fibers that we use like nylon and Polyester. Polyester. And those are actually even more dangerous because they're basically made out of petroleum. We're basically making, using gasoline. Those are also never as comfortable, in my opinion. Unless you're like running a race or something. What are those? Like Under dry armor. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Those are not natural right. fibers, right? So yeah, so there's two ways and they're both kind of destructive. There's this quote going around that scientists keep saying that fashion is the second dirtiest industry to oil in terms of environmental destruction. So this is something I'm really interested in. 
and have been trying to change in my own life. But I thought that talking to a couple of the people at this conference was really interesting for me because they have things that could be solutions. So on the podcast today, we're going to be talking to two people. And one of them is Aaron Nesser from BioEsters. And they are basically making fibers to be used for clothing and maybe other things out of seaweed and algae. The other person I'm talking to is Kenji Higashi, and he's from a company that we've written about before. It's called Spiber. And the North Face parka, for instance, made of spider silk that we mentioned and will be in our show notes, is from Spiber. So here's Aaron Nesser. Hey, my name is Aaron Nesser. I'm an industrial designer with BioEsters, and we are a student research group based at the Fashion Institute of Technology, and we are developing biopolymer-based textiles. Okay, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) So polymer is basically a long chain of molecules, right? And we use polymers everywhere. I mean, leather is a polymer, Nylon is a polymer, silk is a polymer. So there's all these polymers all around us. The problem we're really interested in is that so many of the polymers we use today, especially in plastics and in sportswear, are oil-based. Oil is a very cool, very flexible place to find polymers, but it's inherently unsustainable. And so we're looking at these bio-based polymers that are researched a little bit. They're present in industry. We have a few uses for them. But we think that these biopolymers can really be scaled and used in very much the same way as petroleum is used to create these sort of ubiquitous garments, ubiquitous items in our culture. I want to go back to that for a second because I don't think everybody knows that we're wearing so many petroleum-based products right now and our clothes are basically like (laughs) fossil fuel in action. When did that start and when did we shift from a natural fiber cotton world to what we're wearing now? Well, I am no historian, but if my memory serves me, we're talking the 1920s, 1930s, into the 40s and 50s, where synthetic textile development really took off. And this is, you're asking me a tough question here, but it's all of these synthetic fibers, nylon being one of the earliest and most ubiquitous, really, if you watch it, in action, the production of nylon, it is like magic. It is so cool the way you can take these two liquids, you stick a tweezers in, and you can just pull up filament from where the liquids meet in the jar. It is really a miracle fiber because it is so strong. But when it comes time to take that molecule apart, that polymer apart, it's this combination of two very different molecules, they're inseparable. So once nylon is made, there's no real mode to recycle that at all. That's where we really see the problem here and what we're trying to address. How did you guys find out about this need when you were coming up with the idea? What tipped you off to be like, hey, this is like a very big problem and and maybe we have something that could fix it? There's this quote going around, and I'm forgetting the attribution, but it's something about how fashion is the second most polluting industry on earth, second only to the oil industry. When you look at where we're consuming that oil, a lot of it goes into fabrics and textiles. There's a lot of pollution that comes from dyeing, and 
when we looked at some of these biopolymers, like where are they coming from? You know, it's coming from kelp or it's coming from the shells of crustaceans in the case of chitin and chitosin, which is another biopolymer. And inherently, because these are natural materials, bio-derived materials, they're inherently sustainable. And at the tail end of that, generally biodegradable. But I think it's better to say they're compostable because biodegradable is only really saying that biological action can break this material into smaller parts. And biodegradable, UV-degradable, oxy-degradable, that's one of the places where we get these tiny little pieces of plastic that are floating around in the ocean that are being eaten by birds and other organisms and ultimately killing them. So there's a whole spectrum of problems that we're trying to address here from sustainable textile production all the way to plastic microbeads infiltrating the entire world and causing this sort of known and unknown damage to our ecosystems. This textile Mm -hmm. that you've developed, what does that look and feel like and will it be something that you think is easy to adapt to? Will people notice the difference? It actually looks really similar to like a uh, sort of a plastic cord. If you've ever I remember as a kid you could get this kind of elastic rubber plastic cord and you use it for like craft projects it's actually really similar to that it has elasticity to it it's very flexible and it very much feels like a plastic it doesn't have the sort of texture that you'd expect from cotton or even like polyester but that's still something we're working on right so the texture of a filament is very much based on the topography of the extrusion or the extrusion profile that it comes out of right that shape of the filament. And so that's one of the aspects of this fiber that we really want to investigate. Because it is such a flexible material, we think that we can really create facets, create edges that are ultimately going to make the material have a softer feel and a more comfortable feel. I wouldn't say that this is ready to wear at this point. It's still very much under development. And, you know, in the end, like one, two, three years down the road, We might not even be developing a textile. This is a design process. It's so material-driven that we're very much looking to the material to say, what can you do for us? What do you want to be? And we found that it works very well as a textile at this point, but there are so many other avenues that are possible to explore. Like, we might find out that this isn't it. And it could be in furniture. It could be in packaging. It could be in architectural ceiling tiles who knows like we have all these ideas and we're exploring a number of them but as a textile our immediate goal is to create some running shirts out of it and test those on ourselves as we do a 5 do a 10k and see how the garment performs i mean that that'll really be the test of can we wear this for an extended period of time with so many synthetics you put it on or like if you have a shirt that's over starched or something there's so many things like detergents that can get into our clothes and irritate our skin and that's really the kind of testing that we need to do like we need to go out really sweat really work in these garments and then we'll have a better idea of is this like a realistic garment or maybe we have to change gears and look at upholstery or who knows what it could be but 
we're aiming for the most difficult, most technical application for the fabrics, and we'll just see how they go. That'll tell us the most information, how they perform in these more uh, stressful tests. I'm curious about what you said a little bit earlier about the sustainability aspect, because how I feel these days is like whatever we choose to adopt on a big scale quickly becomes unsustainable. When everybody started drinking coconut water, suddenly it became a problem, but it wasn't a problem before. How do we know the materials you're using are something that can be scaled and adapted to, or is there a threshold that it would reach where it no longer becomes like that? So I was earlier today having a conversation with someone about the merino wool industry and how that's taken off and the environmental damage subsequent to just all of the uh, sheep farming that has happened. Uh, it's become more intense on the land, and from this really wonderful fiber, there is this damage that's accumulating from growing it. And we're thinking about that, too, at Bioesters. The precursor for alginate, which is what we make our filament out of, is a seaweed called kelp. You've probably heard of giant kelp. There's a whole variety of kelps out there and they're one of the best types of seaweed to harvest for this material to extract alginate and there's actually been some controversy about seaweed harvesting specifically in the philippines just this year their department of environmental protection put a ban in place on harvesting kelp and actually one of the biggest alginate producers is based in the philippines so it's a big industry there and the harvesting of wild kelp has done some sort of unspecified damage to the marine life around the Philippines. I'm not sure if the research has been done to really understand the implications of the harvesting, but just like that that ban has been put in place shows that there can be some real environmental damage that goes on. On the other hand, there's some really amazing work going on in Maine where decades ago we saw the cod population collapse all up and down the East Coast, right? And there's still a very strong fishing industry out there, and some of these fishermen are actually going out and starting kelp farms. There's all these sort of economic benefits around it. It fits really well with the fishing schedule because you can do it when you're not fishing. And these, in some cases, are areas where the runoff from our agricultural fertilizers and from our septic systems have increased nitrogen levels to a point where it's actually choking out some of the marine life in these coastal areas. And kelp has this great ability to absorb these nutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium that would otherwise be causing algae blooms or sort of dangerous conditions for marine life. And kelp also provides a really wonderful home for marine life. So having it there, by farming it, we're actually solving some different environmental issues up and down the Atlantic coast. Another one of these aspects is a crop like cotton. It's very intensive to farm from a water standpoint. It takes a lot of irrigation. And from a a nutrient standpoint, there's a great deal of chemical fertilizers and then, of course, the pesticides, herbicides on top of that that go into textile agriculture. And with kelp mariculture, you can't really do that. You can't spray pesticides on plants in the ocean. You can't fertilize plants in the ocean. And plants in the ocean certainly do not use fresh water. When you look out in California, in New Jersey, these like historically low reservoirs were like 
kind of running out of options. We're running out of water. And this plant, we can grow in the ocean, and it requires no fresh water. So I think that's kind of cool. What is your background? Because my guess, is, I have like five guesses right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently in the industrial design program at Pratt, but I did my undergraduate studies at Beloit College out in Wisconsin for biology. I know a couple things. <laughs> but this is like this sort of area of biodesign is, I feel like I'm kind of tailor-made. My education was tailor-made for this. What do you think is the big next step for you guys? Some of the possibilities for this material, looking further out, some of the work that I have been inspired by and the, and the group as well, is this essay called A New Style of Life by Greg Lynn. And he kind of, in this sort of dreamlike essay, he creates this world where the protagonist, he kind of wakes up and he's, he's sleepy, it's 4 a.m., and he's, he's realizing, like, oh, I didn't take off my living clothes. Like, oh, I need to feed my pants. I need to, like, water my shoes. My shirt is, like coming apart because it hasn't had its attention paid to it and something I saw today was actually really similar to what we're doing using alginate but it was actually this group was encapsulating algae into alginate and I took one look at this and I said wow here's a living textile right here if we kind of combine these two technologies we could have a shirt a green shirt that was actually alive it would take some watering maybe a little fertilizer like worm tea or something every once in a while but we could really have clothing that's alive i don't know how practical that will ever be but the aesthetic possibilities are really exciting and just kind of that futuristic idea of like living close like what a wild thing to have me too that sounds great <laughs> We're totally and shoes <laughs> Shoes would be great because then you're like you walk through the rain and stuff, and they could just get automatically watered. <laughs> that would be so cool. Rain boots. Yeah, I mean, we want to do more than anything. We want to do shoes. Yeah. You think about shoes, though. You're standing on them all day. You're taking them on and off. The the stresses and the tensions that you put on shoes are like really kind of incredible. Even in the manufacturing process, you're building a shoe around a last, and just the strength to pull a shoe out of that newly constructed upper, the upper really has to be strong. And being able to create a shoe, I mean, it'd be awesome to create a shoe with this sort of athletic garment that we're imagining. If we were successful, that would be passing a really huge test. I've talked to some of the other companies here, and that's something that really excites them, but it's such a technical challenge. It's almost, you know, like sending a a space probe to Jupiter or something. Yeah. Just like the technical challenges around it are so great for these kind of new materials that haven't been tested, are not totally proven, that doing things like garments, accessories, bags are really kind of now, but footwear is definitely on the horizon as a very cool hurdle to get over. Shoe soles have not changed. There's a huge potential for innovation in that space. That was Aaron Nesser, and you could probably tell he's really excited about maybe this idea of having clothes that are alive. That sounds fun. 
Is it going to be different from when I like walk into a spider web in the woods or kind of the exact same? I feel like since it's taken them this long to make spider silk, it's probably a little more difficult than that. There's also talk of harvesting silk from sea creatures as well, which mm-hmm. I don't know if that came up. No. Well, seaweed, not sea Yeah, creatures. sea creatures also, because no. they make some silk. So we're going to be wearing clothes that are actually alive someday. Yep. Are you excited? I'm very excited. We're going to hear from Kenji about exactly how that process works. Hi, I'm Kenji Higashi, and I'm the Director of Business Development at Spiber. What is Spiber? Spiber is a Japanese biotech company that is developing technologies to produce synthetic spider silk and other synthetic protein materials. What is synthetic spider silk? Synthetic spider silk is the protein material that is made of proteins that we produce through fermentation using genes that we analyze from spiders. So we take the spider genes, we analyze them, and we synthesize DNA to code for synthetic proteins. And we put these strands of DNA into microbes and allow them to eat sugars and ferment and produce these synthetic spider silks. So you're not taking necessarily like worms make silk. It's a different process. You're using the proteins and then you create the silk yourself. Is that correct? Yes. So our fermentation process produces the polymers for the silks. We take these polymers and we put them through a spinning process, which is basically pushing the polymers through small holes and letting the polymers solidify into a fiber form. So this is the spinning process. I feel like when people think spider silk, you think there's huge farms of spiders and you're harvesting silk. This sounds very different than that. So could you explain to me what the setup is like? You can get information from the internet about spider silk genes, but uh, we like to capture spiders and analyze their DNA. And then we synthesize our own variations of spider silk genes by chemically assembling the DNA. And we put this DNA into the microbe, and we feed it with all sorts of sugars in a tank. So we have a tank full of food for the microbes, and we add the microbe and keep them comfortable, control the temperature, the pH, things like that, and allow them to ferment and produce the protein. So it's similar to making alcohol. When you're making beer, you feed sugars to yeast to produce alcohol. But in our process, we feed sugars to produce the proteins. A lot of this conference has been what sort of biofabrics can we make that move away from this sort of oil, fossil fuel intensive process. What are the raw materials needed to make what you make? Agricultural products like sugar. We can use sugar from sugar cane or beet. We can also use glucose, which is a type of sugar that can be made out of starch or corn or wheat. So we can use pretty much any kind of agricultural sugar source as the feedstock instead of petroleum. You know, when something like this gets scaled, obviously it's kind of on that threshold of becoming something that's more popular. So when an idea gets scaled, how do you stay sustainable? One of the limitations of using sugars as the feedstock is that there's only a given amount of land that can be used for agriculture and water is also a limited resource so if we try to scale this for example if we're replacing all of the petrochemical materials that are used today we would need to use a huge amount of sugars it would be 
almost as much of the sugars that we produce globally today. So that's not realistic. So we need to find alternative ways to produce sugar sources. We don't necessarily need to use sugar sources that are edible. And there's a lot of effort in the biofuel world to try to find ways to use, for example, cellulose or algae, uh, this type of material as an alternative sugar source to produce fuels. So we can look at that in that kind of direction. Um, there's a lot of work to be done before you can produce sugars from cellulose at, at reasonable costs. But I believe that it will happen. And once that happens, the sustainability at large scales, I think, will be feasible. What part of that process are you in right now? Are you selling products already? Are there fabrics on the market that are spider silk? What stage of development are you in right now? Last year in October, we made some prototype jackets. We named them the Moon Parka and had an announcement with the North Face. And right now we are scaling our process, um, preparing to put that product on the market. Today we're working at, in the ton scale. So, um, all the materials that we're producing today are used for prototyping and for product development. But we are preparing to have a larger production facility, which will make it possible to put products on the market at scale. This North Face jacket, I saw it, it looks really awesome, but when is that going to be sold and how many will you be able to sell right now? We want to put it on the market as soon as possible. And the quantity also, we haven't finalized. So unfortunately, I can't tell you either of those. <laughs> no problem. Looking around at Biofabricate, and there's all of these different products and all these different biofabrics, is there a lot of overlap? Do you see this becoming something that a bunch of people come together to say, like, hey, here's five other materials you can use to make the same exact shirt you're making? They have different properties. And if you use the exact same material, depending on the way that you process it into a fiber or a fabric, uh, it'll get completely different properties. For example, today we use cotton for, for some types of garments, and we use wool for other types of garments. We might use polyester or nylon for something else. So different materials will be used in the applications that they fit best for. One unique thing about protein materials is that you can actually design the polymer at the molecular level. You can design which type of amino acid will come in which sequence to form the polymer. This gives you a huge amount of control over the properties of the materials, and you can make a very wide range of variations of the proteins. So our vision is to make a very wide range of different types of protein materials that can cover a lot of different application needs. But there will still be other application needs that need to be covered by. What excites you most about this? Is it the environmental aspect? Is it just creating something new? Is it changing the industry? What part of that is what gets you up every day? It's the sustainability. We are heavily relying on petrochemical materials and not just clothing. Our whole lifestyles rely on these materials and we need to have alternative materials to have a sustainable way of living for future generations. So that's the reason that I'm doing this. Has being part of that process changed your daily activities or the way that you live your life at all, the things you buy? Yes, I try as much as possible to avoid unnecessary impact. I don't want to buy products that have heavy impact or high impact on the world. So what I find is that it's very difficult to evaluate the impact that a certain product will have. When you need to buy a new shirt, 
you have so many choices, but it's very difficult to identify the option that has the least negative impact. So this is something that I think is important to try to improve. It's important to have more visibility, transparency about the impact of the products that that we sell and that we buy. You don't live here. I heard you live in Japan. Can you tell me about what brought you there and how you chose where to live and where your operations are mostly? I was born in Japan, and the company is located in northern Japan. This is where Keio University has a biology research facility, and uh, I went to school there, and the members who started the team, the company, went to school there. We have grown to about 150 people now. Yamagata is the name of the city that we're located. So we don't have any plans to move our headquarters or research centers from that location. But in the future, when we scale up our production, we will have other locations for production. Another huge part of the textile industry that's a problem is obviously human labor, and there's a lot of human rights violations that go on in that industry. So when we're creating new sustainable products, how will that end be handled? First of all, our materials are fibers, so they could be processed into textiles in any way you want. You could use conventional methods and conventional labor sources to process the fibers into textiles. But it's very important for us to have sustainable operations, and that doesn't just mean environmentally sustainable, but also socially sustainable. So it's important for me personally, it's very important uh, that we have uh, socially good. What do you think is the big next step for you now um, and for the company now, and what are you looking forward to? We are currently preparing to launch our products onto the market. And in order to do this, we need to have a successful uh, scale-up. So that is the most important thing for us. I wear like almost the same pair of jeans every day, and they have giant holes in them. So I'm doing my part. Don't look for the holes. (laughs) I found one. There's many more. What can I, a mere consumer, do to (laughs) save the environment? I think there's a few things, which are, one, knowing where your clothes come from, because luckily there are more companies that are being transparent about where their clothes are made and how they're made. Unfortunately, those companies are also really expensive, but I have started getting maybe like two things a year from places like that that are fair trade and also good for the environment. I think, honestly, just buying less clothes and using less clothes is probably the safest and best way. Probably buying more expensive clothes is a good move. But it depends. Because, no, I think it is a good move just because usually they're of higher quality and they last much longer. And it's, you know, there's something to be said. The same thing is true in electronics. We don't want to dispose of everything we have. We live in a disposable society. And if you have things that can last a long time, it's obviously better than buying 10 pairs of jeans over the course of a year because they keep breaking yeah patagonia for instance the company is amazing right like they're they're environmentally sustainable as much as possible but they also what i really like is they show you how to repair them so they're like don't get a new one which is kind of what i wish for my phone or my computer i wish people were like here's exactly how to fix it instead of i wish the companies would tell me that yeah i went to the electronics reuse conference a couple months ago or a month ago now 
And Patagonia kept coming up there because they're such an inspiration for people in the electronics repair community. And iFixit actually sold Patagonia their software so that Patagonia could make its own online repair guide for its clothes and stuff. There's also a really good feature in The New Yorker about the Patagonia guy, yeah. which everyone oh, yeah. should check out. I did read that. Yeah. This is not an advertisement for Patagonia, by the way. We just, it's <laughs> not, no, but, just organically actually well, like that. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's not an advertisement. And I write out iFixit all the time, and people are like, why are you always promoting iFixit? And it's because there's very few companies that truly practice what they preach or practice the ideals of sustainability. And when someone actually does it, you want to call that out. It's not... It's not promoting them. It's saying, why aren't other people doing this? And it's a good call to action for us because you have to know exactly how to use the things you're using, which I think is not something we were thinking about as much before, maybe 10 years ago. All right. Well, thank you for that story, Ankita. I look forward to having more sustainable clothes. I fear that progress in this area is always really slow or feels slow just because it's not as fast as like iPhone production, but they're making huge strides. So hopefully we'll see more synthetic biology out in the real world very soon yeah i think it's inevitable and hopefully welcome check out the whole suite of stories and videos on motherboard on the show page we will have all of our stories from the conference up and we will be back next week oh also you might notice that this story is being published on tuesday we are changing our podcast schedule we're going to come out every tuesday now just for logistical reasons so set your podcast downloading clocks to Tuesday. Our editor is Tim Barnes. I am Jason Kebler, and this was Ankita Rao. Thank you. Thanks.